back to Let's Draws for a Minute, the podcast which took a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 masterpiece and is now setting sail into uncharted waters to discover the world beyond Jaws. I'm MJ Smith. And I'm Sarah Buddery, and we have got a guest this week. Uh, we're talking about 1941 uh, in our next installment of our Spielberg series. I'll explain in a minute why we've skipped a film, if you're thinking... Where is Close Encounters? Uh, but first, uh, introduce our guest, a returning guest, a uh, friend of the show. Welcome, Rob Daniel. Welcome back. Hello. It is great to be back. Great to have you back. Look, we've got back-to-back Rob uh, episodes. Uh, last week, we had the the other Rob of the movie Robcast on. So, Double Rob. Uh, a pure coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Rob squared. Uh, pure coincidence. You guys just you you picked films that were the one after the other. So uh, I don't know if you guys planned that or is that just how it how it shook out. No, that was uh, as you said, just a complete coincidence. I have listened to that episode. It's really good. <laughs> I've got some big shoes to fill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we uh, had a really good time talking about Sugarland actually, and that was a that was a first watch for me and i think a first watch for you as well <clears throat> no that was my third my time seeing it. i'd seen it twice before okay okay but this week uh we are both certainly yes. first time watchers of uh 1941 rob has has seen it before so boy did i a... find out why it was my first time <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot to talk about here so yeah, if you're wondering, uh, where is Close Encounters? Obviously, that should be the next film. Well, I mean, technically, Jaws should be the next film after Sugarland, but we kind of did that, so uh, <laughs> skipping that. Uh, Close Encounters. We wanted to get to the good stuff, got... so we skipped Close Encounters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've we've got that in our uh, Richard Dreyfus season. Uh, same with Always as well, which is another Spielberg film. So obviously, there's some that could fit into two categories, and it was which one should we put it into but we've we've popped close encounters into our richard dreyfus season so if you are uh, dying to have us talk about that uh when we do our next vote for our next season make sure you yeah, pop a vote in for dreyfus and then we'll we'll get to talking about close encounters <clears throat> but always uh, always ahead, is also in that season so when we skip always yes. it's because that's in the dreyfus season as well yeah yeah that's right and any anything else sort of i mean particularly with spielberg because we are covering all of them. I think they're the only ones that so. hop over into another <clears throat> season. Yeah, because he didn't yeah, work with Shaw or uh, Scheider again. So Almost worked with Scheider again in the film we're going to talk about today. So. Wait, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, I did not know Wait, that. Do I? <laughs> we'll get to that. Fun piece of trivia. Uh, yes, okay. We are talking about uh, the film 1941, which was released in not 1941, 1979. Uh, following the overwhelming success of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1941 saw Spielberg make a uh, pretty left-field turn uh, and try his hand at a farcical comedy. Uh, it focuses on a pretty 
large group of hysterical Californians as they prepare for a Japanese invasion in the days after Pearl Harbor. It boasts a huge cast, a very talented cast as well, some very well-known names in there, the likes of John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Treat Williams, Ned Beatty, Christopher Lee, Toshiro Mifune, Slim Pickens, uh, some familiar Jaws faces as well in Murray Hamilton and Lorraine Gary. And Susan Baclini. Uh, 1940- Susan Baclini, of course. Of course. Oh, MJ, you ble- you're ruined the surprise. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> We're starting as we mean to go on in this episode. I feel like it will be as chaotic as the film itself. Uh, yeah, 1941, widely considered... Uh, Spielberg's worst film it has just 44% on Rotten Tomatoes I've not gone and checked whether that is the lowest but I'm I don't think there's a Spielberg lower than that we'll we'll see Uh, and yeah that's (laughs) that's as good a place to start as any I think we'll hand over to you first uh, Rob for your sort of overarching thoughts on uh, on 1941 well my first thought when I was watching the film is If Loud in and of itself was funny, this would be the funniest film ever made. (laughs) Uh, This, apparently, at the test screening for this film, Spielberg knew that he had kind of lost the movie when he said that 20% of the audience just had their hands over their ears. And this is a film that just bludgeons you. Now, the tagline for the film on the poster is A Comedy Spectacular. It's like, well, you got that half right then, because it is spectacular, and it's it is a brilliant failure. There is absolute brilliance in this movie in terms of the filmmaking, mm. but it fails, I think, on pretty much every level because no one is really in the same movie. Spielberg doesn't know what film is making. He said at one point. Um, halfway through shooting he thought maybe this should be a comedy and then said upon reflection I think that would have been a good idea you mean a musical um sorry yes yes um should have been a musical but also maybe it should have been a comedy (laughs) it should have been a comedy too that's right that is Freud come here um (laughs) (laughs) but the So I was just watching it because I'd seen it a couple of times in the 90s. And I actually remember it being a lot better than it was. I I don't remember it being (laughs) as dull or as one note. And I think this is one of those weird things where there is so much spectacle in this film. But I put on the How Much Left button and it had been on for 38 minutes. And (laughs) I thought this had been on for about an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) That said, there are certain things in it that I think... This is kind of the best stuff that Spielberg's done. Um, It's just that they needed a script and they needed a proper tone. And I don't think that Spielberg really was the right person to do a comedy. But this comes out of that weird thing that the movie brats were doing in the late 70s, where there was that kind of unofficial subgenre of just making really, really big folly films. So Martin Mm. Scorsese had done New York, New York in 1977 and had gone from these gritty social commentary movies to deciding that he was going to make an MGM musical. But his leading man that he had to have couldn't sing or dance. And you had one of the best singers and dancers in the form of Liza Minnelli, but she doesn't really get a chance to do any of that until the end. 
it's really expensive they're improvising the whole way through they're improvising themselves out of really expensive sets that are just not used anymore because the story is not there anymore and they're doing all the cocaine on the planet yes they're doing all the cocaine (laughs) on the planet and robert de niro Mm -hmm. because the film keeps threatening it's like well there has to be a musical number right now but because de niro can't sing or dance he just does this weird kind of comedy and 1941 just seems that same thing it's like well spielberg can't do the comedy so therefore he just does this really big spectacle that he's so brilliant at hoping that will kind of make up for it but anyway there's lots more to talk about but um uh yeah i'll i'll hand over to you because i'm just fascinated to see what you made of this film in the year 2022 yeah wow boy do i boy do i have some thoughts um I will say right off the bat that I did not like this film one bit. Uh, there's there's still a lot to talk about within it, and I think it is absolutely fascinating to talk about uh, a director like Spielberg making a film like this at this point in his career. And I hadn't made that connection with the sort of like Scorsese thing as well of like the these these film film directors like having great success like off the bat and then just kind of making something a bit left field a bit unexpected and and i'm sure there are other examples of that i mean that maybe it worked we'll, out for we'll him about. it worked out for him but you yeah get, you get uh apocalypse now in the same year as well yeah sure We'd... yeah yeah making a yeah i mean making a uh, a diversion from sort of like what you were becoming known for and uh, Spielberg, I mean, we're talking, if we just think about the two films immediately before this, which is Jaws and Close Encounters, Mm -hmm. you've got these two big, spectacle is the right word, blockbusters, big, you know, big budget Hollywood films. And then you've got this film, which quite literally attacks (laughs) Hollywood. I did think that was like a little on the nose where it's like they're choosing what they're, what they're going to destroy. And they're like, let's destroy Hollywood. And it's like (laughs) Spielberg is almost sticking his finger up at the where he has so far made his successes and made his names and just been like i am gonna make the most bombastic loud audacious uh (laughs) rambunctious comedy film entirely for myself it feels a little self-indulgent and i don't don't say i don't think (laughs) i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing when like a director makes a film that is kind of for themselves but it can't be obvious that it's we have to be in on the joke as well if that makes sense and a lot of this just feels like we are not we are not in on the same joke we are not in on the same joke as the the other people in this film none of them are in on the same joke as each other it's it's incoherent and it's quite shocking to see a Spielberg film this bad because <laughs> I think my previous low point for Spielberg was possibly Ready Player One because I really hate that film quite a bit uh, but this is I think this is probably my new low point I don't know we'll we'll see when we eventually get to rewatching Ready Player One but I found little to enjoy here and it it was surprising when you sort of look at that cast as well and you're like on paper this should be really really funny yeah and i remind me what year airplane came out was that 79 or 80 80 okay so like a year after this and i 
not fully, but Martin was watching it the other day. And that film is hysterically funny. Yeah. That is a spoof film. It is packed full of jokes. It is obnoxious. It's all the things that I think this film is is trying to be as well. But there is coherence to it. It's like small scale compared to this anyway, in the sense that it's it's sending up the disaster movies. It has a Jaws reference in it as well, just to <laughs> just to throw that in there. The but it's yeah, and it's yes. So does this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that having, even though I only saw like a couple of bits of it, I'm, I'm, I have watched Airplane a few times, so I, I know <laughs> know the jokes and the gist of it fairly well. And then watching this today, I was like, ha! Huh. <laughs> There's a way of doing this kind of film. And this isn't it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I fucking hated this movie. Um, <laughs> Sorry? The breakdown begins. Really didn't like this movie at all. Not even once. Uh, I did keep a laugh counter going and it was three. Um, and Ooh, That's the same amount as me. Could I just ask when... When was your first laugh? Because I made a note. Now, I have to admit, I knew that this opened up with a Jaws spoof. Right. And I remembered that very, very clearly from when I'd seen it before. If I didn't know that was coming, I probably would have laughed at that, but I did know, so I didn't. So the first time I laughed in this film was 36 minutes and 24 seconds, I think, (laughs) when the two guys... Murray Hamilton and Eddie Deason are on the Ferris wheel, and then he reveals the ventriloquist. That was my third laugh. That was very funny. Oh, no. That was (laughs) The laughing was done by that point. (laughs) Um, So my first two laughs come in the second scene after the opening, when the guys are doing the breakfast, and they're just tossing dishes back and forth. And and he just... And they were back-to-back. So it was the same joke twice, essentially. But they're just like tossing dishes back and forth and you see the grill and the griddle has like all this shit all over it and he's just like throwing whole eggs with the shell and all onto the griddle and just (laughs) pouring ridiculous amounts of pancake batter. And then he gets a coffee, this small coffee cup and pours like the entire pot of coffee into the coffee cup. That made me laugh twice. And then I didn't (laughs) laugh until the dummy. And then I didn't laugh until uh, I think right now. Um... So, yeah, there's I, a point, there's I a hate point it. when a radio operator is is talking and his equipment is whipped away really, really quickly. I think because it's attached to a plane that's taken off or something like that. That made me chuckle. Um, and there's a bit when the dummy is talking, but Eddie Deason's mouth is just wide open because he's seen the submarine at the end. Yeah, and I thought that was quite funny as well. I think they were the three that I laughed at in this two-hour film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the two-hour comedy, sorry. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> but I think, uh, Rob, I it's so funny you brought up New York, New York, because that's exactly what my mind went to about 20 minutes into this movie. I was like, oh, this is New York, New York. Like, he had just kind of, like, changed cinema, and he had done, right, like, Jaws and Close Encounters, and he could do no wrong, and then he made this weird, expensive failure um, that kind of fucked everything up, and uh, that's exactly what happened with New York, New York. And also, they're both very boring because they didn't have a handle. <laughs> Neither filmmaker had a handle on what this actually was. That was my biggest frustration with the movie, besides it not being funny, 
is that it just has no identity. Like, it doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't know what it is. It doesn't know what kind of movie it is. It doesn't, it's, doesn't have a plot. It's all subplot. It's a movie that's all subplot. And yeah. I, like, I was just like, what, where, what happened? But it's very jarring because the score is incredible. And yeah. so the good. way Spielberg, like, frames his shots is still all Spielbergy and great. And so you're like, okay, well, this is definitely a guy who knows how to make a movie. So why didn't he? <laughs> I think it's one of those those things that, well, there's many, many different reasons. And you're absolutely right when you say this is all subplot. Because the Roger Ebert review says that John Belushi is the main character in this film. And it's like, no, he's not. No, he's not. There isn't a main, there isn't a main character in this film. This film has all these different plots going on. It's very hard to remember what the character names are, even when you're watching the film. Uh-huh. And... It's impossible to have any emotional attachment. And this is from Spielberg, who is all about emotional attachment. And it's so weird just how this clearly got away from him. I mean, he said the making this film was like going for an x-ray every day and discovering that the cure was worse than the disease. (laughs) So that's how he described making this comedy that he was working on. So, and... Um, and Sarah, you comparing it to a, to Airplane. Uh-huh. I wrote down in my notes, it's so weird that they were one year away from having a comedic format that would fit this sort of film. And that's Airplane. Well, they already had was... it because Kentucky Fried Movie had come out in 77. And like that movie doesn't hold up. And it's got some pretty rough stuff in it as far as like what it considers a joke. But that set the, that set the tone for what the, the, the Zazz movies would be. So he had already had, like, they had already done that movie, and yeah, it was more, like, vignette-based than Airplane is, because Airplane has a through line, but, and Kentucky Fried Movie is, like, just a sketch comedy movie, but it's the same group, right? It's still that, and... I th- go ahead. Yeah, but I think that this is um, uh, Spielberg, the, yeah, the movie buff, the encyclopedic knowledge. He's mm-hmm. looking back to films like It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, yeah. and... Um, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, these sort of films that are like of a different era. And sure. it used to be that it would just be enough to have a massive cast and people would just go to watch the massive cast and just to watch the big things. But by this point, you're right. The Kentucky Fried movie is a really, really good example of like, no, film comedy was changing and it was changing in a way that just made the old stuff look even more creaky. Yeah. Well, and 1941 and... just feels creaky. Yeah, and you put John Belushi in it. John Belushi, one year earlier, does Animal House, which, like, set the bar for the teen sex comedy, right? And so he's trying to get a little bit of that in there with the woman who gets horny on planes, but, like, it comes off weird, and then, like, Belushi's not doing what Belushi does in this movie. Like, he just... It's such a misuse of who that... Like, who his personality was at large at that point and mm. i would say dan Aykroyd too like you get two snl guys in there and they're barely in it and then you give them no jokes like it just it doesn't make sense to me well the thing is all the all the jokes are visual right there's no jokes in the scripts in the dialogue there's not a single joke in the dialogue which is what airplane does right it's it's a joke a second but there's jokes in the words they're saying too there are no jokes in the dialogue in this movie it's just visual jokes for two hours yeah. Uh, but, I, sorry, sorry, go on. 
Yeah, I was just was like visual joke is kind of just how I would summarize this film. Yeah. Except it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's not funny. It's just so it's so dependent on it's just everything that happening on screen, like being funny. And when it isn't, it's just really I found it nauseating at times, yeah. like headache inducing. Yeah. It was really I think just not having uh, even just one character to kind of like carry things through. Mm-hmm. And that should have been John Belushi's character, right? If they're calling him the main character, he should have been the main character and the other kind of sketch show things can or vignettes can like come into it and, and play a part in it. But it was like, okay, we're with... The uh, the woman who gets horny on planes, and now we're with this like group of soldiers, and now we're back on the submarine, and this guy called Hollis Wood, and then now we're <laughs> with Lorraine Gary and her husband, and they're putting a, a big gun in his garden. Now they're watching Dumbo. I was like, I don't yeah. know no. what is happening, <laughs> or... <laughs> <laughs> or why why I should care about any of these characters. Yeah. I will say appreciate the accuracy dumbo did come out in 1941 so Uh, at least they got it right uh i was me being me and having done an in-depth like disney breakdown podcast as well i was just like is there any significance to the fact that it's that it's dumbo i mean if you boil down dumbo's message it's like not judging someone based on what they look like or what you think about them and tenuous link but i guess this is the attitude of a lot of the soldiers in this is like shoot first and ask questions later but i don't th- see in in another film with more nuance and with more oh you mean another film where john like... candy doesn't do blackface <laughs> <laughs> oh we need... we'll get to yeah. that we need to talk about <laughs> a lot of things around that <laughs> yes uh yeah, I was like, it, it, you know, it, maybe I would have been able to <laughs> pull that out of it. Maybe that was intentional or maybe they just, I don't know, Spielberg was just like, it must have been expensive yeah. to get the rights to like have clips of Dumbo yeah. in it as well. It really felt just like a flex. Yeah. <laughs> like he put it in because he could rather than like there is significance to this film being part of this film. So I kind of like... Th- basically threw all my notes out of the window of where I was going to have this really in-depth analysis of why it's significant and good that Dumbo was <laughs> part of the plot because I realised there was no plot and it really doesn't matter yeah. and none of this matters <clears throat> and I think that's meant to be the point but it's really inf- infuriating to watch because just as you're getting to grips with one of the the, the, the B-plots, you're somewhere else mm-hmm. and none of the things are, are connected. Like It feels like as the film progresses they make it a little bit more of an attempt to tie some things together, like some groups sort of meet and and merge and yeah. Oh, I just <laughs> had a really awful time. Watching yeah, I, well, and, and you know, obviously, airplane is the 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 closest in 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 time to this film as to like oh they perfected it a year later, but I was thinking a lot about um, Top Secret. Because I, I feel like yeah. Top Secret is 1941, but good. It's kind of the same movie a little bit as far as, like, what it is, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I love Top Secret. That movie's hilarious. I mean, down to Oops. down to Top Secret has Peter Cushing in it. This has Christopher Lee in it. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that as well, thinking it's so weird because Top Secret is is set during the Cold War, isn't it? But it mm. uses all of the World War Two genre conventions. Yes. And I was thinking, well, it's so weird how so quickly a lot of films came along that showed how how this film should be done. Because when you have Stripes in 1981, mm-hmm. which is a military comedy that is funny, and actually the the John Williams theme, the main kind of march theme from 1941 score, seems to have influenced Elmer Bernstein for Stripes because they really, really reminded me of each other. So you've got that as well. And then Nancy Allen as... Donna Stratton, is it something like that? The woman who gets horny on planes. That yeah. is, that's her character. Well, that was not perfected, but was done in a much more memorable way when you go to Porky's a couple of years later mm. and you have, again, a woman who, if you take her to a certain location, she she gets so turned on that she loses herself and will have sex with you. And it's like, okay, so it's so weird that all these things came along a couple of years later that proved how audiences could respond to this in in a much better way. Um, I think the reason why the film fails is because... So it's written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. And John had, Milius. Um, I wa- and John Milius, yeah. So, um, yeah, so he did the story, didn't he? And yeah. it's like, well, John Milius mm. is an incredibly conservative filmmaker. He's a Nietzschean filmmaker who would uh-huh. make... Conan the Barbarian, um, yeah, Big Wednesday, most famously Red Dawn, which yeah. was the one about the Russian invasion of America. At that time, he had an arsenal of weapons in his house because he was convinced that the Russians were going to invade America. And then you've got Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who had done I Want to Hold Your Hands, and they'd do used cars, and Back to the Future would be their really, really big hit. Yeah. Um, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well from, for Zemeckis. But apparently the first drafts of this film were... Well, Spielberg said there wasn't one joke in the first draft. And it's like, well, not in the shooting draft either, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <it>. but, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like, apparently it was, it was, it was much more cynical. The humour was, was much darker. And it's like, yeah, because this film is a satire of, of America not needing an enemy because it will find an enemy itself. Yeah. Even if it's an invisible enemy. And you're clearly wanting to tell that sort of story, like a Doctor Strangelove type story, in mm-hmm. a mad magazine way. It's just that by the time it gets to the director and the cast, all of that's been lost and it's just turned into a slapstick. And I was thinking, well... It would be so interesting to see that original draft because you're just coming out of Vietnam as well. So Vietnam is really, really recent memory. And of course, that is where America just uses all of its military might and for something that was a complete catastrophe. And and this is based on you know, the actual hysteria that came in 1941 after Pearl Harbor and in LA, there was this thing where they thought there was going to be a bombing raid, so the Civil Air Defense and uh, the Air Force were firing at nothing for an hour, just firing into the sky because they were so sure that there were going to be bombers coming. And it's like, well, that's that's interesting. That's an interesting thing that happened. Of course, that's also only three years after the War of the Worlds Orson Welles thing, where a lot of people thought the Martians 
mm. invading. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, there's a certain mm-hmm. naivety to to America in this time that would be an interesting film. It just shouldn't mm. be a slapstick comedy. It's just the yeah. wrong... It, it, it should be it's more in line with something like Four Lions, right? Like, if I'm thinking about comedies yeah. about the war on yeah. terror, sure. like... Four Lions is the only example I can come up with. Or, like, comedies about 9-11 or whatever, right? Four Lions is a very funny film, but it's also very poignant. Like, there's a very, there's a very clear messaging within that film. And I think this needs that, especially when you put a director like Spielberg in charge. Like, it needs a clear... I think it needs a clear messaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it just comes off as, like... It's really weird. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Uh, and also, you know, it is in the wake of this tragedy of Pearl Harbor, right? Like, that was a big deal. <laughs> and, yeah, like, that's right. a lot of people died. And so it's like, well, what's the tone here, right? Like, it's not quite, it's not making fun of Pearl Harbor. Like, at no point do I think it's being insensitive to the attack itself. Um, but it's also just like, what? how is this the movie you made about, like, how America responded in the wake of that and like i don't think that it's wrong to make a movie about the 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 mass paranoia that happened after that in retrospect with a lighter tone but it needs to be a little more hard-edged and satirical than just like a you know noises off with guns you know like it just (laughs) well that's interesting that um because there was a lot of criticism at the time that it was making light of Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. um, and Gary Arnold in the Washington Post called it a pointless, hateful, artistic disgrace. Oh, I think it's hateful, so, but I don't think it makes fun of Pearl Harbor. I think it hates Japanese right. people. Yeah, that's and that's the thing is that it's like it's this was too too dark a period in terms of Pearl Harbor and what would then come after in the Pacific War, right? To make a to make this sort of comedy about it. Um, well, obviously you can, you shouldn't, you shouldn't censor, but then the audience can choose whether it works or not. And um, I mean, this did, this did make money. It didn't make a huge amount of money. It wasn't a flop. It did make money, but because Spielberg had made Jaws, which was the biggest film of all time at that point, And then had made Close Encounters, which had done really, really well as well. This was always seen as a flop. And yeah, well, and also, like I said, John yeah. Belushi and Animal House, like that was a hit too, right? So it was like yeah, these that's... these three driving forces behind uh, <laughs> what movies were at the time. And, uh, and I mean, even, you know, Milius wrote uh, Apocalypse Now. I know it came out the same year, but he wrote that movie. That's right. It's um, And I was thinking that Apocalypse Now oddly has more successful comedy in it than mm. really anything in 1941. And... The scene, it seems to me that the scene with Robert Duvall as Kilgore and the helicopters and the ride of the Valkyrie, just mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. just the flamboyance of that and the bombast of that, but also the dark comedy of what of the point being made about the American um, military machine and American exceptionalism in terms of of how it viewed itself at that time. It just seemed well that seems to be everything that 1941 is trying to say and failing all of the time. And that's about a 15 minute segment of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Ugh, it's absolutely, yeah. I mean, well, absolutely and fascinating. I think, I, I think a year later, you know, there's, uh, I was reading that Kubrick told him it was great, but not funny or whatever. It's not a comedy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And a year later, yeah, I read that as well. a year later, Kubrick makes uh, or two years later, right? Three years. 
uh, Full Metal Jacket, which is mm. very dark but very funny about Vietnam, yeah, right? Like, right, it's, yeah. there's there's a lot like it's not it's not funny in and of itself, but like that line about like how do you kill women and children? You just don't lead them as much. Like that's a very darkly funny line in in the context of the film right like it's not just funny because he's joking about killing women and children but it's like oh no this is the the this was the prevailing school of thought for american soldiers in vietnam and uh it's it's a very like it, it's a it's a way that it seems clever but it's also like no this is like kind of fucked up and so it mm. works and this doesn't <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. yeah. What I'm... Oh, sorry, go on, Sarah. Sorry. What I'm, what I'm noticing is that we're mentioning a lot of other films that do everything that 1941 is trying to do, but they just do it better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so, it's so strange to me how much this film doesn't work. <laughs> because I think that... I, I agree with you guys, and, and apologies, I lost my sound for a bit, so I missed some of what you were saying, but the the fact that the, the sort of the original version of this film perhaps is very different to, to the film that we ended up getting, yeah. and that is the version I am much more interested in, and this version that we are sort of talking about, where it explores this idea of the the unseen enemy and i mean well that's a connection with jaws and 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 duel already and and looking at it in in that sense and just having to find an enemy because you need something to to shoot at like that idea i find just so much more interesting Mm. than than what we've actually got and you can make that funny because all the films we're mentioning have proven that 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 can be funny i mean I think, Rob, you mentioned Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. That was all I had on my mind <laughs> while I was watching this film was how much of a better time I would be having if I was watching Dr. <laughs> Strangelove um, because I love that so film good, uh, yeah. a so great good. deal. And I think that... <laughs> that and, and this film has the does... cheek to lift a scene yeah. from that with mm-hmm. Slim Pickens when he's going through all of his stuff yep. saying, I've got one yeah. of these and one of these. And it's like, oh, wow, there's a Dr. Strangelove reference in this. That's ballsy. Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> never been more upset to see to see Slim Pickens used in in that way because obviously so iconic in in Doctor Strangelove, yeah. and then appeared here, and I was like, oh, that's cool. That's a. It's obvious, I think, that Spielberg is among others uh, inspired by Doctor Strangelove in in making of this film. So that casting does feel feel very deliberate, but it's it's it's. I don't know. Doctor Strangelove has farce in it, but it doesn't sort of getting this film. Oh, I just I'm struggling to even describe it. It's just like it has everything, and it's trying to throw everything and and hope that something will stick, and and it just doesn't because it has slapstick, it has spoof, it has farce, it has kind of sex comedy as mm-hmm. well, which is weird thrown into the mix. And it's you could make I think a very astute film with this subject matter yeah and have it be more coherent and have it be funny and i'm so i'm so shocked that this is the film that we (laughs) the film that we have and we haven't even got into some of the more like controversial elements of it but but we will get there and i just i just i there's a good there really is a good film in there somewhere and i I always try and find the best in a film because i don't like just 
straight up trashing a film because I'm like, well, there must be something about it I can find. And while there isn't much that I can find redeeming about the finished product, I can see the good film in there. It's just a shame that we don't get to see it. Yeah, it's just too big and unwieldy and weird. And there's there's too many characters. There's too many people in this movie. Spielberg, he called in every favorite. It almost feels like he wanted to do Blues Brothers because he was in that. But with, you know, I mean, I think Dr. Strangelove by way of Mad Magazine is the best way to put it, right? But mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. I don't know. Is Blues Brothers out yet at this point? When's Blues no, Brothers? that's really... Yeah, that's the other one, isn't it? Ooh. That's the other big film that showed how you can do this sort of mayhem. Because, of course, John Landis is in this film. Yeah. I didn't recognise him, but he's in it. He's, yeah. He plays the motorcycle yeah. guys covered in dust and dirt. Oh, and, okay. I saw him on the cast list, but I, I, yeah, I couldn't find him. And there is a director's cut of this movie that's two and a half hours long. Yeah. I have to admit. Nope. I could... <laughs> there was... Um... I did have the opportunity to see it, and I thought, no, I'll, I'll just watch yeah, the two-hour version, the version yeah. that came out. Yeah. I'm so happy I did. I, I just can't imagine watching another half hour of, oh my of God. this film. I was, apparently... This movie, that, I, that's the other thing, too. This movie is <laughs> annoying. Like, it's yes. an annoying yeah. movie. It was so, like, Kristen walked in at one, Kristen walked in when they, during the Slim Pickens part, and she was like, what is happening? And I was like, I got nothing for you. Like, I like fucking Yojimbo and Dracula are trying to make him take a shit. I was, I, I have no idea. And so, um, I would watch that. Film. <laughs> okay, enough about that dream you had, uh, MJ. Yeah. What, what happened in the film? Yojimbo, Dracula, and uh, Major King Kong. That is the spin-off film. <laughs> that's right, I... <laughs> that is the perfect way to put it. And that's the great thing about this film, is that there's so much great film history on screen at yeah. the same time. Yeah, because you mm. have Dracula and Yojimbo and Major King Kong in the same frame. Yeah. And, it's like, and this film doesn't... It's a bad film? It's like, oh, it's such a bad film. It's such a... Oh, I tweeted... I tweeted, like, uh, Toshiro Mifune and Slim Pickens share a scene together, I'm having a stroke. Like, it just, it felt so dreamlike in that moment where I was like, what the, f- I want to know what yeah. his experience, what, what Toshiro Mifune's experience was making this movie. Like, I just, I don't know much about the band, but it, I was, I could not believe he was in, I didn't know he was in this. I didn't know Christopher Lee was in this. I didn't know Slim Pickens was in this. And, like, I just, I really don't know what it was like for those, like, type of legendary dudes to be in a movie like this. And just, like, because it seems like they don't really know what kind of movie they're making. Like, they don't know what movie they're in, it seems like. They're compelling performers, so that's the most interesting stuff that happens in the movie. But it's not funny. None of what they do is funny. I think it's one of those things where... (laughs) They just turned up and they did their roles and it was like, okay, I just know that I can act, so therefore I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and I'm going to say my line's in German. Um, yeah, me, Christopher Lee, I'm going to talk in German. Yep. Um, and Mufune saying, I'm going to talk in Japanese and we'll just be able to understand each other. And it's like, okay, that could work in like a mad way. It doesn't work here though, because I kept thinking, oh... <laughs> <laughs> So that's happening. <laughs> also, the version I watched, a lot of what they were saying wasn't subtitled. I bought my version from Amazon mm-hmm. Prime. It subtitled the main 
parts and, and they were old looking subtitles so I think it was from the original print but a lot of it wasn't and it's like and we'll get into that when we talk about some of yeah, the racial problems of this film but it's like you do a very good job of othering the Japanese just not by translating or um, subtitling a lot of what they're saying mm-hmm. and I speak a little bit of Japanese and there were some quite funny bits in when they were going through slim picking stuff and one of them blows the lucky rabbit foot yeah. thinking it's going to be a whistle yeah. and then he says well it's not that and he puts it down. And it's like, well, that's that would be worth a subtitle, I think, because that's quite funny. Yeah. But, um, mm. but yes, it was... Ugh. And then... Sorry, <laughs> just go back to Full Metal Jacket, which is, as you said, that it is a funny film. It is... The humour is very dark, but it just has one of my favourite lines when, it's when Joker's being interviewed by the news crew and says, I just wanted to travel the world and meet rich and stimulating people from lots of different cultures and kill them. I wanted to be the first kid on my block to get a confirmed kill. And that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that should have been the kind of humour that was in this film. And of course, Full Metal Jacket makes lots of references to John Wayne because he did The Green Berets, which was that pretty odious film that was entirely pro-Vietnam and has the Mm. sun setting in the wrong direction at the end. Mm -hmm. And John Wayne was asked to be in this movie, wasn't he, by Spielberg? And I understand, Sarah, that you're not a fan of John Wayne, having listened to the previous (laughs) episode about the Sugarland Express. Yeah, he's the entire reason that I don't apparently just wrote off the entire genre of westerns. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. (laughs) To the point where I thought, actually, I might put together a letterbox list of westerns you should watch, because the western genre is so brilliant. Please, I will watch them. But yeah, the fact, it's just so weird that the fact that Steven Spielberg was phone friends with John Wayne and they would speak to each other once a month and he sent him the script to be General Stilwell, who is the Robert Stack character Mm -hmm. in this, who watches Dumbo. And it's like, wow, you wanted John Wayne to be in your movie. And then you were surprised that John Wayne said, uh, yeah, just hated the script and said it was anti-American and unpatriotic Mm. and it was a disgrace to the servicemen. It's like almost as much as a disgrace, John, as you pretending that you won the war in all those films, even though you refused to fight. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I think um, I was reading that Charlton Heston turned it down for like the same, yeah, the same reasons as well. And um, yeah, the 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 Roy Scheider thing, I didn't know about that. But yeah, Spielberg wanted Roy Scheider for for this the role. I think the same one that we're talking about, Major Still General well. Stillwell. Yeah, yeah. Which is in- so. I mean, we get a we get a fair few <clears throat> Jaws familiar faces here. I mean, they're all in in little little bit parts, yeah. but we get uh, Lorraine Gary uh, is. This is where I don't know any of the character names, and this <laughs> cast list, at least on Wikipedia, <laughs> is like unhinged. It's, it's so long. It's <laughs> I'm having to like. I'm having to use the like control <laughs> yeah, search yeah, function yeah, yeah. to even find the people that I want to talk about. So Lorraine Gary is Joan Douglas, who is the wife uh, of Ward Douglas, which is Ned Beatty, mm-hmm. and their their house gets this giant gun put into the the back garden, basically. Um, Murray Hamilton is uh, Claude Crum. He's one of the guys in the uh, the Ferris wheel. 
Um, I didn't recognize it was Mario Hamilton to start with, and so, I knew he was in yeah, this film. I, so it took, until he, it took until he spoke until for me to recognize it yeah. was him. Because I, I had seen him on the list, and I was like, I don't know any of these people's freaking names. And then he spoke, and I was like, oh, it's Murray Hamilton. He's got a beanie on. Yeah. He looks like, because he looks and sounds like such a dweeb yeah. in this. It's so different from Larry. Yeah. It's like, it was quite unnerving. I will say that <laughs> you guys are both laughing at the, uh, the like, ventriloquist uh, dummy appearing. Uh, I had quite a visceral, uh, different reaction to that because I am <laughs> quite intensely scared of ventriloquist dummies. <laughs> so when that little guy popped out, uh, I almost had a panic attack. So... <laughs> So the film turned into Dead of Night view at that point. Yeah, it was. I was just like, my notes at that point is like all caps. Uh, let me find it. Why is there a nightmare ventriloquist puppet? Um, so, so a very different reaction uh, to you guys. And uh, yeah, Susan uh, Susan Backwinnie. That's her name, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, Yes, uh, right at the right at the start, we gotta talk about this opening. We're, I mean, forty something minutes into uh, an episode, <clears throat> spinning off from our discussion about Jaws, and we've not spoken about the, yeah. <laughs> the opening yes. of this film yet. But I, so MJ, maybe you, you, you when I get to, <laughs> you can say the uh, how I reacted to what yeah. I saw in our in our Twitter DMs, but I. I didn't recognize it as or at first I was like that looks like Susan Backlany but then when you see her in close up I was like that doesn't mm-hmm. look like her at all but where this film opens I was like are they doing are they doing jaws like cuz the the beach looks very similar I see a girl like running along the beach and then she takes off her clothes and she gets in the water and I was like oh they are doing <laughs> they are doing jaws uh this is very strange and I don't know if I like mm-hmm. it or not but uh yeah uh, I didn't know that this was <laughs> this was in the film. I had no idea that it opened with such a um abrasive Jaws reference. Uh, so it didn't make me laugh. It just made me sad and made me want to watch Jaws. Well, that's interesting that it made you sad at the very start <laughs> of the film before you realise what the film was like. Um, yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> because it was the sorry. Uh, because at this point, when they tested it for preview audiences, that got a massive laugh, and they all thought, "Ooh, Spielberg's done it again." And then apparently, interesting. <laughs> uh, apparently, the laughter stopped pretty much immediately after that, and yeah. um, it was like, "Oh, <clears throat> maybe we, maybe we have a problem now." But yeah, but that jaws opening because it is it is quite spectacular when the submarine comes up, and it's a good miniature as well. But that bit when she's holding mm. on to the periscope is like. This is, but it's well shot. Um, and yeah, it is, again, it's like a ballsy move that you are going to quote what is still at the time in recent memory is one of the most terrifying moments of cinema and you're going to play it for laughs. Um, yeah, I think it's quite an impressive sequence. It didn't make me laugh uh, this time. I think it made me laugh the first time I saw it during the 90s, I have to admit. MJ, did you laugh at... You didn't laugh at this bit, did you? <laughs> no, my eyes rolled out of my skull when I saw what they were doing. And I was just like, wow, really? Really? So actually, my first thought was, and you didn't let them make Jaws 3 people zero? <laughs> I think because of this Yeah, because this would have been the perfect opening. Yeah. <laughs> like in Jaws 3 people zero, this opening, hilarious. 
right? Like if the, but just to, <laughs> to, there's no reason for it. Like I just didn't understand the motivation to just do this, especially with Susan Baclini again. And I had the same experience you did where I was like, oh, we're doing Jaws. Okay. Um, is that Susan Baclini? And then the close-up happened and I was like, no. And then I was like, well, I should look it up so I don't sound like a moron on the podcast. And I was like, oh my God, it's her. Why? Um, it just, man, it just, it really annoyed me uh, that, that he had done this. <laughs> but the film is also, has other weird in-jokes to Spielberg films. Yeah, like, there's the snake lady from... Uh, from Jewel. Jewel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, and again, her gas station gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. Lucille Benson, I think that's her name. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this film has two explosions in the opening 20 minutes, neither of which are an action scene. Yep. It's just the end of a scene. And it's like, yep, again, if Loud was funny, this would be hilarious. Yeah. Um, and apparently, one of Spielberg's top director friends when he found out that he was making a comedy, said, but when has Stephen ever been funny? <laughs> <laughs> so that's just hilarious. And also, uh, Sorry, just one other thing, because there are so many facts and trivia moments about this film that just make you eye-roll even more. <clears throat> so one of them is that over a million feet of film was shot over 247 shooting days. Oh my God. Which works out at 10 thousand hours what <laughs> sorry because <laughs> i i think it's like oh <laughs> and of course he had multiple cameras set up for things and you wouldn't yeah. print everything but yeah they just shot and shot and shot and shot so, and what Lord. a waste of resources yeah. well but, it's uh, it's it's yeah. funny because like we were, we were talking about apocalypse now and that was a success but we were talking about apocalypse now and um new york new york and this, and the one, two, three punch of that really ends up just totally screwing Michael Cimino after Deer Hunter when he makes Heaven's Gate. Like, he's the one who gets the short end of the stick because that movie, like, ruined his career because of how big of a flop it was and how much money he wasted. And it's like, wait a minute, Spielberg, Coppola, and Scorsese got to do this. What, what am I, you know? <laughs> I think it's because Heaven's Gate was <laughs> such a massive flop that it destroyed a studio. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Scorsese's New York, New York, that didn't make money, but the song New York, yeah. New York made so much money that it completely wrote off all of the losses from the film. That's true. So it has to be said. And this, and this made a bit of money, and Apocalypse Now was a hit. So these guys got lucky. Yeah. Chimino made Heaven's Gate, which I think is a really good movie, and... Yeah, he, he didn't get lucky because cause he made a Western when no one wanted to see a Western and it was so expensive that it destroyed the studio, so no one was going to give him money anymore. But it has to be said that Spielberg, after this film, when George Lucas was was going around to different studios with Raiders, they were all, um, some of them were interested in it, but not with Spielberg, because he had a bad reputation at the time as a director who, yes, he he's, he's delivered a couple of really, really big hits, but he's profligate... He's undisciplined. He always comes in over schedule, over budget. And George Lucas had to persuade them to consider Spielberg as the director of Raiders, which obviously is mind-blowing now. Yeah. But he had a bad reputation at the end of the 70s as as a filmmaker who was out of control, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I could see that <laughs> um, based on just the, the sort of, you know, mad lad stuff that he does in Jaws Close Encounters and this. Like, I... Some of the spectacle, like you said, is really great. Like the the planes at the end, end question mark. Um, but the <laughs> the plane chase between like um, John Belushi and uh, the the horny woman and a guy. Um, <laughs> Tim and, yeah. They uh, <laughs> that's really cool looking. Like the miniatures, the miniature work there is it's really outstanding work. And the you okay? I we haven't said this. The movie got nominated for three Oscars. Um, Did. Jeez Louise. And I honestly... The Oscars that it deserved, I think. I honestly think it deserved all three nominations and needed one more for Best Original Score, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was Best Cinematography, Best Sound, and Best Visual Effects. And I totally see how, even though this movie is garbage, you could... Like, the technical <laughs> awards that it got nominated for, absolutely, right? It's sort of like... Um, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody is a trash movie, but it won those sound awards and it kind of deserved it because the restoration they did on those Queen tracks for Live Aid was real outstanding, especially considering yeah. how <laughs> how that foot how that audio was captured. Um, it is not the easiest format to work with, and it sounded so clean in that movie. Like it was it was legit. I hate that movie, but that sequence is really, really well done in the audio department and i'm obsessed with that queen live aid performance so i was like i was like <laughs> arms crossed like by the time that happened and then that that uh that sound mixing happened and i was like oh that's they did a really good job on this actually so when that when it won those <laughs> i was like okay i get it it deserved those and so i think cinematography sound and visual effects it deserves those nominations but i hate this movie <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, but that's the thing is that it's like Everyone in this film is working at the top of their game, apart from the scriptwriters, mm-hmm. who, because I, th- I think this was just being changed and rewritten as it went along, so that's not to say they were doing a bad job, I just don't think they could keep up with what this film was becoming. And Spielberg, as a storyteller, is not is actually working at probably the lowest he's ever worked, but as a visual director, he's still at the top of his game. The effects guys, like, yeah, the special effects guys... The sound guys, John Williams, um, William A. Fraker, who was one of the cinematographers. I think, I think he replaced the original guy who was doing it. Um, they all bring the best that Hollywood's money can buy. Mm-hmm. And they had all the money in the world to make this movie. So it's just this brilliant failure. It's like, so much of this is brilliant, or should be brilliant, but all of it fails. And, well, it's... Be- yeah, the stuff... Go, go ahead. Um... Oh, sorry, just one more thing. The stuff with the planes when they're flying down that street mm-hmm. is great. And it's like, I, that is, my God, those miniatures are so brilliant. But apparently, mm. Spielberg just used every single thing that was shot. And you do feel it, because it's yeah. like, this is so brilliant, and there's so much of it, it would have been better if it was shorter. <laughs> but he just wanted to put it all in. And it's like, again, that seems to be a metaphor for this entire failure. Yep. Well, and it, you know, it's edited by Michael Kahn and the editing in this movie mm-hmm. is what kills every single joke. It is so like the, the Ebert review says yeah. that the jokes are so ill. T- it was at the Ebert review or the Cisco review uh, said that the jokes are just like so poorly timed in the edit that it, it's not funny. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's absolutely true. But 
This is the guy who edited Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Poltergeist and he and and Temple of Doom and the Goonies and the Color Purple. Like this is a this is a, a an all time great editor. It seems like so. What does he did he just not show up actually? And they just slapped his name on it. Like what happened where he he just does not understand how to edit a joke is that what it is like the, the, it, the every every comedy beat in the edit comes one beat later than it needs to <laughs> yeah and- yeah i it, it it should just be so much better than it is like when you look at all these when you when you look at all these individual components you know the these aren't like a bunch of hacks making yeah. this <laughs> making this film. This is why I think it's so. I mean, we 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 talk about it as like a a fascinating failure. It's incredibly interesting just to talk about like how how this film ended up being what it is when you've got all of these people behind and in front of the camera involved in it. And oh I don't God. I don't know like where the but I don't know where the buck stops. I don't know. Is it I, is it Spielberg? Is it kind of like a little overindulgence? Like it, it sounds like there was a lot of material that they shot for this film, and obviously the fact that there is like a half hour longer extended cut as well. There was clearly more that he wanted to have there. Is it just like overstuffed, overwrought, not funny? Just I don't know. I don't. It's I haven't like. I struggled in writing my notes mm-hmm. for this film because I was like, I know I don't like it and I know the reasons why I don't like it, but I'm so fascinated about why I don't like it because had all these things worked the way that they should, I should like it. <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it's... it makes complete sense because that's how I think everyone watches this because because Spielberg's one of the great filmmakers. And yeah, to your point, mean, there's a really, really nice section in the Sugarland Express episode you did last week where you're talking about how funny it is. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's a really, really mm-hmm. funny film. And Spielberg can do funny moments in his films because of course Jaws is filled with them. Yeah. But the way that he does mm-hmm. comedy and understands how to do comedy is I let the actors be funny and I just have a very, very simple setup and I just let them be funny. Whereas I think with 1941, he's trying to make the filmmaking funny and it completely smothers what the actors are doing. He also said that everyone was so in awe of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd that everyone kept trying to be like them and he couldn't (laughs) or wouldn't rein them back. And to your point, Sarah, about how Airplane works, because it does have, excuse me, because it does have a realistic element to it. Um, Spielberg himself said, that 1941 doesn't have the concrete floor of realism that comedy needs, mm. and mm. and that's mm. why it fails. Um, there's also a quote, actually. Can I be indulgent and read out a quote that Spielberg said about the film? Yeah. And he mm-hmm. said, we would have been much better off with um, $10 million less because we went from one plot to seven plots. But at the time, I wanted that. The bigness, the power, hundreds of people at my beck and call, millions at my disposal, and everybody saying yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah. I think that kind of sounds <laughs> what his mind was at that the time. answered my question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that that there's definitely this power trip of like, I would argue you see it with, you saw it with M Night Shyamalan, you see it with uh, Christopher Nolan, right? There's these young dudes who get a little bit of fame mm-hmm. and success, and then no one tells them no, and then they go and make the village, or I like the village, but you know what I like, <laughs> and I, I think. The happening. Uh, the happening, yeah. They go and make The Happening or The Last Airbender <laughs> or uh, uh, yeah. uh, Interstellar. I know you like that movie, Sarah, but I really don't. Or uh, <laughs> Tenet, you know? Like, they just, no one tells them no. And Spielberg yeah. has had the good sense to uh, let them, to, to realize that and pull back and let people tell him no sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, I think... I, I really think, like, especially Nolan hasn't. I think M. Night learned the hard way. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> sure. uh, uh, and still learning, it could be argued. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it yeah. Could be. I did not see old is I did not see old the movie about the beach that makes you old, uh, which is what I call that movie every time I see it. Um, <laughs> but I really liked The Visit, and I really liked Split, so... Uh, you know, he still does it. You know, he, I mean, he had to finance the visit himself uh, in order to get work again. Um, <laughs> but, like, I mean, but Nolan, Nolan got so, like, he got so cocky about Tenet that he released it in the middle of lockdown. Yeah. Like, and... you, can, you can trace, I know, like, David Zaslav is making a lot of bad decisions at WB, but I think you can trace why, quote, why they're having to do this directly to Nolan forcing them to release that movie. It ruined his relationship with that studio. And it wasn't a good movie. Um, although, Interstellar, I'm with Sarah on this, I think it's really good. But anyway. Um, <laughs> also, Moving on. <laughs> so there are some some good things that I'd like to talk about. Um, about this film that might be good to save mm-hmm. to the end. So, shall we talk about some of the, some of the, um, I don't know, the, uh, let's say the racial elements of this film, the mm. racial politics in this film. Yeah. Should we talk about that now? Yeah, I. <sighs> Where to start? Uh, <laughs> well, with the original title of the film, I think. Well, yeah, that would make a place. To... What was the original? Remind me Red... the original title. I read it Red... earlier and then erased it Red immediately. Sun Rising. No, it was no. God, no! It wasn't anything that good. No. Um, <laughs> it was, um, and this is a racial slur. So, so apologies to anyone who is offended. But this was the original title of the film: <clears throat> "The Knights, the Japs Attack." Oh my God! <laughs> and well. <laughs> and the other title of the film that John Millius says we were also considering Japs. So there's that too. Good um, Lord. Of course, there was a film, I think, in 1981 called Yanks yeah. about Americans coming mm. over to Britain, which was a very, very good film. And Yanks, of course, doesn't have any of uh, the loaded <clears throat> racial elements yeah. of, the, of the other word, yeah. <laughs> which gets used a lot yeah. in this film. Um, yeah, I just think it was... I think that is another reason why it was hard or impossible and a folly to make a slapstick comedy about this particular time. Because mm-hmm. for understandable reasons, there was a lot of xenophobia mm-hmm. and you kind of have to address that in your movie. But if it's a slapstick comedy, when you do address it, it just comes across as 
really, really tinnied and really jarring. Yeah. And Dan Aykroyd's big speech about why America is great and how it, it's not going to um, to be beaten kind of comes across really hateful now. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was like... Yeah, it's it's just again, it's it's fascinating because it gets it so wrong. But what did you guys think of that? Well, I think I think one to address sort of <laughs> the original title of the film. I think if you're making the film to show the sort of folly of the American military and just shooting into the night sky at nothing, then the title has like a very cynical satirical edge to it right Mm. like if it's if it's got that title and it's just about how dumb america was in that moment in their you know fevered paranoia after the attack on pearl harbor that they were literally attacking nothing and that's the point i see the title working a lot better Uh, (laughs) um uh not great but i can i can kind of understand where you would get that title because then it's putting it on like this is what these people thought and like i you know depiction is not always endorsement. So um, I think that 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 could have, quote, worked a lot better than just kind of hearing it, knowing what the movie is now. Um, But uh, that's not the movie they made. So what the the movie they made Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. super racist. Uh, That was the (laughs) other thing is, is, you know, thinking about Toshiro Mifune in this movie, like, this movie's really racist, and they have, you know, the greatest Japanese actor of all time, a man who you could make an argument for being the greatest actor of his generation, regardless of uh, his national origin. Um, and obviously, like, Spielberg's a, you know, he's a big Japanese cinema fan, like a big Kurosawa. He, he worked with Kurosawa. He got, he got dreams made for Kurosawa in the 90s, right? And... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure relish the opportunity to work with Toshiro Mifune like that any filmmaker would, but then they're like, make him this like racist caricature. And I don't know, like I, it's really, really weird. And this isn't the first time we're going to have to talk about racism in Spielberg's movies. Um, Cause Temple of Doom is pretty racist too. And it, it, so at, the other token though is I don't want to say I sort of get it, um, but Spielberg, you know, being a Jewish man, I think has a lot of thoughts about, you know, the Axis powers. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're entirely unjustified, obviously. Um, So I think that has a lot to do with maybe the way that they were depicted in this movie, but because it's, how do I say this? I want to say this lightly. Uh, like, like I, w- I want to be sensitive about this, but because it's not Germans, right? Um, and the Japanese mm-hmm. definitely did some awful things themselves uh, during World War II. I don't want to say they didn't, um, but... Uh, you know, because it's not Germans who are the enemy and that's, you know, where a lot of the stuff that happened to Jewish people happened, it feels a lot weirder um, than if this had been like, okay, yeah, this is a Jewish guy making a movie about, you know, what Germans did in World War II. Like that, I totally get that. 
And I also understand that as a Jewish man, those two things are equal in your eyes, right? Like they were the, you know, it was what, Italy, Germany, and Japan. Like I totally get it. And so on one hand, I understand how, you know, he, I think he rightfully so has a lot of like complicated, uh, to put it lightly, feelings about um, World War II and Jap Japan's involvement. Um, but at the same time, because this is about America and I live in America and it's particularly about California where we put Japanese people in <laughs> camps, uh, not mm -hmm. great. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. And I, I did think about that as well. I just wish that if, if Spielberg wanted to make uh, an, an anti-war film or or have those kind of sentiments in it that it had just been done in a in a better way because yeah. it just they just feel like a lot of kind of like cheap yeah, shots yeah. At, at times and a lot of stuff that is very very unnecessary and I don't like saying things are like of their time because I don't think they were okay then and they're certainly not okay now it's just yeah coming at like Rob you said to, to me in our DMs earlier like coming at this like cold and 2022 yeah. is kind of wild <laughs> how much stuff there is in there and why you know if people on the internet haven't got a hold of this more and like tried to cancel spielberg or something because <laughs> i mean ridiculous thing to do because i think uh, you delve back into any director or any yeah. person's past really you're probably going to find something that you could cancel them for uh but yeah there's a lot of stuff in here that made me feel very uncomfortable and i think that a lot of the the stereotypes and stuff in it are i mean everyone is a caricature and everyone is a stereotype in this right that's that's kind of its point but it's just there's ways of doing that without being so <laughs> overtly offensive yeah. uh and the the thing with is it, it is john candy mm -hmm. isn't it if we have to talk about the unfortunate uh blackface whiteface incident yeah towards the end of the film i was reading and i don't know if maybe in your research you've seen this as well rob that in the extended cut they more was made of john candy's character of being this like very kind of racist dude uh, which is why he like freaks out so much about like yeah anyway I don't even think with that context it works. Uh, <laughs> it's not okay. And uh, interesting, bringing back Dumbo, that they chose to show the very problematic yep, prose yep. in I thought about that Dumbo too. as well. And then, oh, I thought, yeah, indeed. then have their own controversy later. <laughs> but it's so weird with Dumbo because it chooses one of the most beautiful things in any Disney film. When yeah, Dumbo is... baby mine. Yeah, that's right. And then goes to the Jim Crows and it's like, Ooh, <laughs> interesting to that part rather than the part where it's flying because you love yeah. flying and there are planes flying. So why did anyway? Um, mm. But the thing, <laughs> and the thing with that is that uh, the John Candy character in the extended cut, while it yeah doesn't really make it any better, it would at least explain it more because when well when I see John Candy because I just grew up with John Candy and just love John Candy so much. Mm -hmm. And you always think he's playing a good guy. Yeah. So at the end, when he realises that he's got oil on his face or something, so he's he's got blackface, and he's saying, oh, get it off, get it off, get it off. It's like, 
all I'm doing is seeing John Candy in blackface saying, get it off as if it's the worst thing in the world. And, okay, so, so that doesn't work either then, and that's horrible. And, yeah, because you bring a lot of what John Candy became to that particular scene, I think. And, again, this is what... If it was a satire, <clears throat> if it had been a darker film, to your point, MJ, yes, yeah, the title would have made more sense, but also I think the treatment of this stuff would have would have just uh, been better. Yeah. Like, it's interesting that the... I mean, yeah, the J word is not is not very nice, but at the time, and actually for a long time afterwards was quite acceptable, much more acceptable than a lot of the things that John Belushi's character says. And he comes out with mm-hmm. the most, well, he comes out with the most verbal offensive stuff in the in the film, I think, mm-hmm. about um, Japanese people. But he is portrayed as this out of control, just the worst kind of American military jingoism. Right. Yeah, destroying more things... Um, than is saving, just just this kind of undirected weapon. So it's like, well, I think you were originally trying to make a point there about this sort of thinking because you're putting the worst stuff into the mouth of that character. But that point just gets completely lost because the film isn't a, isn't a satire, it's just a slapstick failure. But then again, there's other parts of the film that also completely undercut that, like someone does an impersonation of a Japanese person using oranges for eyes mm-hmm. and in the tank. And I mm. completely forgot that point. And it actually ruined one of my favourite jokes from the film. When the when the tank is going through a paint factory and gets covered in paint and then goes through a turpentine factory and comes out spotless. <laughs> That's... I, it's a big, stupid joke that took a long time to shoot. Yeah. And John Millius said, do we really need this? But at the time, I remember thinking, oh, that's, that's quite a funny joke completely missing that there was this racial caricature in the middle of it Mm -hmm. that now just completely kind of spoils it. So, yeah, I mean, and I was thinking it's interesting that no one has picked up on this and brought Spielberg to task about it. But then again, I just don't think people watch this film, really. I don't think this is a film that Mm -hmm. people sit through to really endure a lot of this stuff. So, uh Yes, I think he might have got away quite lightly. It would be really interesting to see what he'd have to say about it now, though. Yeah. I think, what's, I, I, what's Spielberg's... It, it, you know, like yeah, you, like you were it. saying, you, you know, it, it others the Japanese characters by not subtitle, subtitling them or subtitling them correctly. But then yep. in 2021, he makes this decision to not subtitle the Spanish in uh, West Side Story. And I think it's one of the most inclusive decisions he makes. You know, like, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to kind of see how... Yeah, I guess he's he's kind of changed, maybe. But at the same time, you know, I was thinking about about this, and maybe maybe this will come up in Empire of the Sun because it's the only other Japanese World War II movie he's made, I think. Um, yeah, but uh, which I've seen once, but don't remember a lot about. Um, but you know, I think it's it, I think it might be kind of sticky right like it's but is it because he he loved Kurosawa and you know Japanese films so it's yeah I don't know I wonder if it's just one of those things where he decided it's best to be quiet about and he might yeah I don't want to armchair make assumptions about this guy I've never met <laughs> um but 
you know, I could see how he could have maybe a little bit of, um, like, you know, pretty, pretty racist leanings towards the Japanese, uh, in that he's born in 1946, which means he's growing up immediately after the war. He's Jewish, which means he grows up immediately after the war where his, you know, direct family and, and ancestry and lineage was under direct attack. And Japan was allied with that country, you know, like, I, I think it would be hard to separate that, you know, so I, it's not that it gives him a pass, but you can under you can follow that line and understand too. I think it's also one of those things where, of course, the Marines fought in the Pacific and a lot of Americans fought in some of the bloodiest battles of World War II and came back with stories about Guadalcanal uh-huh. and Okinawa uh-huh. and those sort of things. And they would be terrible, terrible stories they were coming back with. Um, and it's really, really fascinating with Empire of the Sun, which is, I mean, it's a much better film than this. Sure. The first hour of that, about the fall of Shanghai, is amongst the best stuff he's ever done. Uh-huh. When it gets into the prisoner of war camp, um, Ken Russell, who called Spielberg a fascist director, which I don't think is true. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. He said, but he said, never have I seen a prisoner of war camp that looked more like a holiday camp. There's not a hair out of place. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a glow to their skin. They all look pretty well fed. And it's, and it's interesting because I think, and I could be wrong because I've not seen Empire of the Sun for about 10 years, but I seem to remember thinking this is almost seems like a corrective to 1941, that it's mm. still saying that that the Imperial Japanese Army did terrible things because they did. Right. But it's not as you know, one note or as superficial. And then of course he produces The Pacific mm. uh, about 20 years later mm. or so, which is um, the follow-up to Band of Brothers. Right. Which I thought was a very, very good series. And, and while it did acknowledge um, yeah, the atrocities that were committed, it did seem to try to say these are not an other these these were people as well yeah. um, on the Japanese side. So, and 1941 does seem to be this like it's the first step that Spielberg takes as an artist talking about World War Two, and of course that's taken up mm. a lot of his time over the years, and it's a complete misstep. Yeah, but then it quickly becomes much more interesting because Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, the Nazis have been treated in a very very um, fantasy way but they're still a threat and then you get to empire of the sun which is one of his more serious films it all builds up to schindler's list which yeah i think is is along with jaws his best film Mm. um and you can kind of see him trying yeah to uh, to wrestle with his opinions i think on world war ii over his films yeah absolutely fascinating and actually um with schindler's list what you were saying about um about west side story and choosing not to subtitle the Spanish, it's absolutely fascinating the way the German characters in Schindler's List speak English and German, and when the decision is made to have them speak in German, and when they speak in English. And someone in the 90s wrote a very good academic paper about that, um, that just shows there's a lot more thinking going on with his later films that are based around the war, Mm than anything going on in 1941, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, and you uh, you also, 
I mean, Jaws has a the whole the, the most famous scene in Jaws uh, amongst Jaws yeah. fan Ooh. is a, an entire story about a man in the Pacific um, delivering the bomb, but it largely doesn't really make a statement about it. Like, even you know, but it, I, I think that you know from Quint's perspective, delivering the bomb was a heroic thing, and it was something that. He, you know, any way we delivered the bomb, like that line implies that he thinks that they did the right thing. Um, but at the same time, a thing- depiction is not endorsement always. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to blow that out to like, oh, Spielberg thinks that, you know, using the bomb was a good idea. So. But there's a very good ending to that, though, when, because it's such a wry way the Robert Shaw says, <clears throat> but we did it. We delivered the bomb. And it's mm-hmm. it's such a bitter final statement to to what the cost of that was yeah. that I always think there's a ambivalence there in that character mm, that actually yeah. comes quite close to say the satire that maybe this film should have been mm. or the level of humor or the type of humor this film should have had um, mm. but doesn't and yes it would have, even at the time I think um, a lot of this was seen as xenophobic and now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To modernize a lot of this is like, wow, this is a Steven Spielberg film. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm. I think it's it, it will be interesting to when we get to his other his other sort of war films to to have this to to compare it to. I mean, obviously, completely different films with completely different things to say, but seeing a director evolve over time, I think, is something that's very very interesting and. I can see why Spielberg thought it was a good idea to make this film. And it's it's coming back to what we were saying earlier about this, you know, t- too much money, too much power, not enough people saying no to him. He just had these two monumental successes. And is, you know, this this at the time as well. I mean, we're what, like two years after after Star Wars, you know, big hit for, for George Lucas, who is one of his his pals and everything. These guys were, you know, doing pretty all right for themselves at, at, at this time. And this film, to me, just smacks of uh, Spielberg's hubris, right? Mm. It's, it's a little too much self-confidence. It's a little too much cockiness. Yeah. And that pays off in something like Duel. And we, we, we spoke about that, where it's like the absolute balls of this kid to, to make this film. But yet, you know, the, the, the end result of that is, is very, very different to this, the, because that was right at the beginning of his career. He had nothing to lose uh, at that yeah. point. The stakes are higher now for Spielberg. He's He's just had these two huge box office successes and now is just like look at me i can i can do anything and you see i think this needed to happen in order to enable what comes no, next I, yeah <laughs> because I, sorry i don't mean to interrupt but i think you're 100 percent right i think after this film you see him become a lot kinder it, it, as far as sure i don't think he puts his cast through as much hell as he used to after this yeah. film like even though they even though like um raiders and temple of doom were both pretty hard productions i don't think i think spielberg made the previous films harder to make and in raiders and, and temple of doom they were just shooting in harsh locations sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. raiders was like yeah. 
was one where if you watch the making of that, you can see that he knows he has to prove himself as a responsible filmmaker mm-hmm. in terms of mm. his schedules and budget. Um, because he was so burnt on this film, I think, um, in terms of the reaction and and how he was seen. Well, and all, um, you know, just how lean that movie is, right? Like, the movie's yeah. this is kind of, I, I think it's a perfect movie. You know, we'll talk about it next week. Uh, but <laughs> there's, I don't think there's a hair out of place on that movie in a good way. Like, it's just so... It's very meticulous mm-hmm. and well-made and, like, exciting and great and holds the hell up, I think. Um, and... Indeed, yeah. Yeah, but... And I think you you don't get a movie like that um, without <laughs> something that kind of humble him and, and make him have to reassess, like, his entire approach to making a movie. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, this needed... Needed mm. to happen to sort of maybe take him down a peg or <laughs> take him down a peg or two. It sounds like harsh to say, but I mean he's doing all right yeah, for himself. He 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 picked himself back, <laughs> picked himself back yeah. up after this. Like he's doing he's doing pretty all right. Yeah, a couple uh, of hits. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, a couple, couple, yeah. a couple of hits to come. But uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's so <laughs> the. The more I think about this film, I don't like it anymore. Mm. In fact, I maybe like it less. But the the looking at it in the context of of what we've had already and what is to come, I think makes it a much more interesting film to consider. I think it... This is where I struggle because I'm like, if someone asked me, is this film worth watching? My like gut reaction based on how much I disliked it is no. But also I think it is fascinating. Mm. <laughs> I think it is fascinating how bad this film is. And I think that if you go into it with that lens, because I I, I really tried to be hopeful for this film. I'd heard it was mm. not good. And I was like, I'm maybe it won't be as bad as people say. And then it ended up being worse than I could yeah. have ever imagined. I, <laughs> but I, it's <laughs> it still is, I think interesting if if you if you want to see i don't know maybe don't waste two hours watching it if you don't fancy it but also just baffling how this film ended up as bad as it was given everything behind it and and in it the people in it everyone in it is great these are very talented people i can't believe i hate a film with tashira mifune this much yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, that guy. and yeah, Christopher so Lee. Like, if you were like, "Hey, Absolutely. do you want to watch a movie where Tashira Mifune and Christopher Lee are the bad guys?" You immediately want to go, "Yeah, I've, I absolutely yeah, want to see them as villains in a movie together." <laughs> and like, then you you show them 1941. It's like, oh, fucking never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had the same yeah. experience you did, Sarah. I went into it being like, "Look." A lot of people don't like Speed Racer. I love Speed Racer. The movie's great. So maybe this is, mm-hmm. you know, the Spielberg Speed Racer is just kind of misunderstood, whatever. And then within minutes, I was like, I hate this. Like, I really <laughs> am. This movie is so grating. It's so annoying. It just is so, so, it's so much for such a long time. And just like, it's just noise. <laughs> 
after a while. Like, it's just <laughs> noise. I really didn't yeah. like it. And if someone said, should I watch it? I would be like, listen to this episode. We did it for you. I think, you know, not even <laughs> to toot our own horn, but I think listening to a podcast about it will get you all the context you need to understand the sort of arc of Spielberg's career. I do think it's a very important benchmark in his career for, I think there's a very clear, you know, uh, uh, before 1941, after 1941 style of filmmaking um, that we see happen in him. And I think we'll notice it even more in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, that's what we're talking about next. And I think, uh, one, I'm just excited for the uptick in quality uh, to, to be able sure. to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark for the millionth time next week. But I just think that... that the you know for his greatest i mean obviously jaws our favorite film of all time one of the best movies ever made and close encounters also great duel also great but i think just the way you know if he doesn't learn his lesson after 1941 he doesn't become steven spielberg as we know him right like the, our podcast yeah. doesn't exist if he doesn't learn the lessons he needs to after this film Mm-hmm. Yes, he becomes Michael Bay instead. Yeah, um. yeah. No, that's 100% <laughs> correct. Like, I think, you know, and I think we would still maybe have Jaws as our favorite film of all time, but I think a lot of that is like, oh, he's the guy who defined childhoods forever, you know, for nearly everyone who's mm-hmm. a film fan, and he doesn't do that until he learns his lessons off of 1941, right? Like, I think you could still have Jaws be your favorite film if he becomes Michael Bay, but it feels more like a one-off rather than like a masterful filmmaker Mm. yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well there's a couple of points just to finish on on a high but there were a couple of things (laughs) in this film that that made me go oh look at that um so so it was nice when michael mckean appeared as one of uh, the anti-aircraft gunners i like michael mckean that was nice sam fuller (laughs) the film director is in this movie and again it was like my God, the cameos in this are just so weird. So Sam Fuller is the general who puts everyone on red alert because Tim Matheson and Nancy Allen are flying in that plane and they've not got permission, so they think it's a Japanese plane. Um, And Sam Fuller was the director of The Big Red One. He did Shock Corridor, The Naked Kiss. He he fought in World War II. I think he was in his 30s when he signed up and he fought in North Africa and he also was there at one of the liberations at one of the concentration camps. He, I think he, he joined like a newspaper firm when he was like a kid because you could in those days and he was like a story man and he's one of the, of the great filmmakers. So Sam Fuller appears and it's like, that's Sam Fuller. Well, of course it is. Why not? Just go... Just have Sam Fuller in your film as well. <laughs> There's a joke about when they can't get the radio into the submarine and one of the Japanese sailors said, we need to find a way to make these smaller. Yeah, I got like a wry smile out of that. Um, <laughs> but mainly it's like just some of the shots I thought were gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it looked like old Hollywood. Yeah. Particularly stuff with Nancy Allen. One, because I think she has an old Hollywood beauty, but also her costuming was great. And there's a moment when she's standing in front of a B-17, you know, the big plane at the beginning. And she's got her back to camera, but she's standing in front of the plane. It's like, do you know what? I wouldn't mind getting that as a print to put on my wall. That's such a good Mm. shot. 
And there's another point when she's standing in front of the Dumbo sign and it's all these lights behind her. And again, it's like, oh, that's just a nice shot in amongst (laughs) all of this confusion and chaos. So, yeah, every now and again, there'd be something that I go, oh, that's nice. Or that's weird and interesting that kept me going (laughs) for the two hours. And I think this film is just a little bit longer than Raiders, but feels about... I'd say approximately six and a half days longer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with yeah. you there. Could not wait for it to be over. Like I was, I mean, I was checked out of it quite early on to it. But had it been a a, a breezy little eighty minute, ninety minute uh, film that had actually been funny, uh, I probably would have been a lot more on board with it. But in the discussion about whether we should watch the cause MJ, you were like, should, which version should we watch? And at that point, I didn't know there were two versions uh, of the film. And upon learning that the extended cut is two and a half hours long, we were like, let's <laughs> let's go with the theatrical. Yeah. Cut. <laughs> I don't want to watch another half hour. <laughs> so, correct decision uh, was was made. But yeah, it's yeah, only, it's only three minutes longer anything. than Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> it feels three weeks yeah, to a, 118 uh, minutes is like three is weeks like... <laughs> 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 oh you got the so joke good. before me <laughs> yeah I don't know if I have anything else to to, to say about this film I didn't it's like bad. it it's so all. bad uh, I was weird. in such a bad mood dude Kristen came in near the end and was like can you turn this down and I was like well uh, the dialogue is impossible <laughs> to hear if I don't um and she was like you look like you're dying and i was like this movie is killing me is why <laughs> okay one more yeah. thing and then i promise that we'll stop um mickey rourke's in this film and i completely forgot i that. didn't notice him at all in this movie he's one of the tank crew oh. he gets a couple of wide shots and he gets a couple of close-ups when they're going through the paint factory i think but um I saw him and thought, oh, I always forget. I think it was his debut yes, film. It is. I always forget that this is Mickey Rourke's debut movie. Um, yeah, so again, it's like, oh, that that's kind of perked me up for a little bit. I'm sure that'll keep me going for the next 10 to 15 seconds. Yeah. Um, Apparently James Caan is in this movie. <laughs> yes, he's in the what? scene when the Zoot Suiters have the big fight, uh, that big dance mm-hmm. with the servicemen. Mm-hmm. Apparently James Kahn's in there. I did not spot him. I also did Then again, I did not... I did not recognise Murray Hamilton at all during this film. Only at the end, <laughs> when his credit comes up with him, it's like, I can't believe that was Murray Hamilton. I did not... I just did not recognise yeah, him. I didn't recognise Michael McKean either. I, rec- mm. <laughs> I recognise him, but... Um, just one look he gives that's that's very, very Davidson Hubbins from Ty- um, Spinal Tap, yeah. and I thought, oh, okay, right, yeah, that's him. <laughs> But but Mary Hamilton just blew my mind. It's like, can't believe that's loud. Yeah, he's unrecognizable in this movie, which is weird because he's just got glasses and a beanie on. Like that's the only thing. But I feel like his hair is so iconic in in uh, uh, in Jaws that it's like to take that away from him, you're like, oh yeah, that's you know, who's this Elmer Fudd looking guy? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and there's um, sorry, one other thing. Uh, so Robert Stack plays. <laughs> Stillwell, he would be an airplane a year later mm-hmm. as the wonderful Rex Kramer who helps Ted Stryker land the plane. He's great in that. 
he can do funny when he's got the right yeah. mm-hmm. team behind him. Yeah. Well, so my last yeah. point is once again bringing up another movie that makes 1941 better than 1941 is. Uh, it's it's Mars Attacks. Like Mars Attacks is <laughs> this movie, right? Uh-huh. Like it's it's yeah. almost the exact same movie, and it works so much better than this movie does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. That's yeah, a I really, that that's a really, really good comparison. Yeah, I didn't even think of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Well, I, <laughs> I, we've got more out of this film than I thought uh, that I thought we yeah. were going to. So I think we've done a, we've done a good job here. Uh, we, perhaps indicative of this film's quality, uh, we only had one. <laughs> Response, uh, very funny. Your, th- your thoughts on 1941 people have not seen this film uh mj do you want to do you want to read out uh, yeah. the tweet uh at swoop 1138 um says i love 1941 it's a glorious mess and i think i think that's indicative <laughs> of even people who like this movie are like oh it's a mess it's such a like it's yeah, like the, the, yeah. The, the 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 most positive people about it are like oh yeah it's kind of a steaming pile of shit but i love it like <laughs> and I was hoping because I saw that yesterday before I watched the film because I watched the film yesterday morning and uh, and I kind of and that's how I remembered it and I was thinking yeah I'm looking mm. forward to seeing this this big glorious folly that's just a dazzler for just what a mess it is and then I was like oh no it's all it's all one note and bludgeoning and a little bit tiresome okay that's that then um yeah but if people do think it's a glorious mess and can get that out of it then i kind of envy them because i think that's how because that's how i definitely remembered it being from my last mm. viewing during the 90s but yeah not so much anymore mm. i think that's what i yeah that was that was what i was hoping for out of it as well i mean i'm glad we got a, a positive comment on it and if you are listening to this episode you didn't get time to to, to tweet in your thoughts then yeah, I mean, please, we'd love to know, like, if if you do like this film, why? Mm. Uh, <laughs> but genuinely, you know, everyone's least favourite film is someone else's favourite film. So I, if you do like this, I can't imagine this being anyone's favourite film. But if you do just like this film or like it more than, than we do, then definitely. I, I am always keen to know and hear other points of view and I'm, I'm rob you've been more positive than i think me and mj have there's just been me and mj i think it would have just been like an hour and a half uh breakdown yeah. of us just like wailing into a microphone about how much we hated it so <laughs> it's always good to have a, a different perspective but um yeah thank you rob um so much for for coming on again and now is your your chance i know you've got lots of other projects and things that that you're doing so you get a chance to to plug those now and let us know where we can where we can find you great thank you uh well first of all thanks for having me back and yeah i really have enjoyed talking about this film even though (laughs) i didn't really like this film as much as i thought i was going through this time but it was was just such a fascinating (laughs) film to talk about because yeah spielberg Mm. is one of the great directors and this film as we've said is not one of his best but what what a fascinating film. Um, but yes, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can see what I'm doing there. Um, and as Sarah said, I do a couple of podcasts with Rob Wallace, who was on the Sugarland Express episode. So they're called The Movie Robcast, 
and you can listen to that wherever you're listening to this and you can follow that on twitter at movie robcast and the other one is called another time mcleod and is it is a highlander scene by scene breakdown podcast that mj's been on before mm-hmm. um, a couple of times i think yep. and was great um and you can find that wherever you're listening to this. And it's on Twitter at McLeod Time. And yes, I think they're the two things that it would be good to push here. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Um, MJ, have you got anything you would like uh, to add? Real Perspective, R-E-E-L Perspective. Um, by the time you're listening to this, I think our episode on The Rehearsal is our most recent episode, The Nathan Fielder Show on HBO Max. We've got an episode on Everything Everywhere All at Once coming out. Um shortly after this probably next week uh i was on uh well my episode of my most recent episode of another uh, of my uh, another time mcleod is out um so you can listen to that and uh i think it should be out but i was on gag me with a chainsaw to talk about psycho 2 <laughs> which is great i'm looking forward to that one yeah i still haven't i still haven't watched that but i I was reorganizing uh, our Arrow video collection the other day and saw it in there. And it was one of the ones that I hadn't unwrapped yet, but it has now mm. been unwrapped. So we are one step closer to me watching. <laughs> me yeah. watching I'm also very excited <laughs> to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark after this. So. Oh, oh, could I also wait. say that I'm very, very excited to listen to what you've got to say about Raiders? Cause that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be a great episode. That film. Well, as you said, is just perfect. So, yeah. yeah. Why do I have a? I have a feeling we will get more tweet responses next week when we ask for. Uh, you think so? On uh, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Also, the cast list for Mars Attacks uh, is Buckwild. Uh, I always forget who yes, everyone who's in that movie. Once again, uh, I think a great comparison to nineteen forty one. So is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, things to plug. Um, I've written a couple of things recently um on looper one thing that uh i spent a really long time researching so please read it uh is about the sort of i hate the title because it's the clickbaity but the untold truth of bambi uh which is basically a really deep dive into bambi which celebrates its 80th anniversary this year um so basically i spent a very long time going through all my disney books on my shelf uh <laughs> trying to find all the stuff that i needed for that so if you want to learn some stuff uh why the book was banned uh by by nazi hmm? germany uh how gross uh, bambi's mum's death was originally going to be uh if someone hadn't stepped in and told walt he couldn't uh you can find uh some more interesting i was hoping it would be a conspiracy theory thing where you're like actually another deer shot bambi's mom and (laughs) here's the proof kubrick shot kubrick shot bambi's mom (laughs) yeah (laughs) it was uh thumper on a grassy knoll (laughs) Yeah, yeah 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 Like who shot Mr. Yeah, Burns? There were but... two there were two Bambi's mom shooters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually shot like a load of different endings and uh just put the <laughs> the one that made the, the least sense in there. Um yeah, and also <laughs> wrote something about <laughs> wrote something about uh the best uh film noir movies, so 
had a really wonderful week watching a lot of really really great films so, uh, and 1941 you can find them <laughs> and you capped it off at 1941 <laughs> do you know what let me uh, i've got a minute my letterbox is absolutely unhinged uh for my last kind of like couple of watches it was going so so well uh because my most recent watches uh give me a second to pull up my letterbox so I watched Suspicion, I watched Detour, Notorious, In the Lonely Place, The Big Heat, uh, that was for my film Noir Research, uh, all but one of those I think was five stars. Then I watched Everything Everywhere all at once, which was uh-huh. fantastic. Uh, and then I watched 1941. <laughs> oh no! So... <laughs> A real drop in quality uh, <laughs> from my, my recent watches. But uh, yeah, if you uh, want to <laughs> read uh, either of the things I just mentioned or any of my other Looper pieces... Um, you can go to looper.com forward slash author forward slash Sarah Buttery and that's where you'll find all of those. Uh, you can get in touch uh, with us, uh, the podcast, on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Jaws for a Minute or you can email us Jaws for a Minute at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sarah Buttery and MJ is at MJSmith891. On our socials, you'll find our link tree. That's got links to buy our merchandise through TeePublic or Redbubble. You can buy our theme song through Bandcamp. And it's got a link to our coffee page as well, where you can send us a donation and a shout out on the show and an entry into a competition to win some merch. Uh, You can also support the show at no extra cost. You can rate, review and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, um, which we really appreciate as it helps more people find the show. Uh, I think that is all for this week. Uh, Join us next week where we will talk about a film I imagine a lot more people have seen uh, than 1941 uh, and get your thoughts in uh, on that as well. We're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. I will put the tweet out uh, probably as soon as we finish recording this. And uh, yeah, until next time, it's Jaws O'Clock somewhere.